0: I had some ideas about what it was gonna feel like that didn't match what it actually was.
1: Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. We are a community for curious people, for people at a life or career crossroads, ready to rejoin their soul and their role. We are insatiably curious about how self-knowledge can make us better humans and help us make a bigger impact.
2: The more we learn, the better we get. And there are people from a wide variety of disciplines doing the work. They can teach us something about ourselves and the work we can do.
1: I'm Shelley Prevost. I'm an educational psychologist.
2: And I'm Chad Prevost. I'm a writer and teacher. We are partners in business and partners in life.
1: We have in-depth conversations that cut to the chase and reveal that our inner work is critical if we want to leave a mark on the world. This is Big Self Work.
2: Let's get started. Dr. Christy Angevine received her undergraduate degree from UT in Chattanooga, graduating summa cum laude. After attending East Tennessee State University's Quillen College of Medicine, she completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology in Chattanooga, where she then practiced for six years before moving to Bend and joining the East Cascade women's practice in 2016. She loves collaborating with women throughout all stages of life. She also has interests in preventive health promotion, as well as minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery. Christy and her husband have two children, and she makes time for things like being on as a podcast guest by waking up very early. On today's episode, we discuss when is the end in sight for the current pandemic how uncertainty can be a good place to be when it comes to lifelong struggling between faith and doubt, but uncertainty between what emergency room you run to is different and how there are different responses to feeling lost. She also has some powerful thoughts on mindful drinking habits and just how far willpower can get you.
1: Christy, I am really curious about um, how you are experiencing Covid nineteen. So we're in the middle of this, uh, pan- this global pandemic um, as of this recording. And you are out in Oregon, and a physician. So I'm really interested in, um, just kind of the temperature you're seeing out there. How's the emotional state with healthcare workers? What are you seeing, and how are you doing?
0: Right. So well, I'll just give you my disclaimer. You know, I work in women's health as an OBGYN. So what yes. I see is very much shaped by that world. You know, I'm not, I don't have a public health or infectious disease background. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, you know, we're really close to Portland and Seattle. So the the climate right. here is it's very similar to I think what you see in the locations that are adjacent to the epicenters. Um Essentially, there's this you know, ever-present question of what could we have done in advance? Where are we now? What is the proper PPE for our healthcare workers, and what is the reality of that PPE availability? Um, there's all sorts of conversations going on, you know, in the it, sort of in the clinical side of mm-hmm. trying to balance what is ideal with what is realistic. Um, in terms of, you know, ideally, we would all be like completely wrapped in hazmat suits all the time. Yep. But What supplies are actually available is a little bit different. Right. So there's that balancing act. Um, and for us here in this community, there the surge of cases has not really hit. We have cases here. But we haven't, at least in my world, we haven't had any known pregnant women um, or gynecologic women who have it. So we're on the cusp of experiencing that and seeing, we're basically trying to make sure that when that does hit and things are as intense here as they are in other places, that we're doing what we can with what we can. And I think what I see in our community is there's that kind of that mix that you see everywhere where there's, you know. On one hand, people are taking it very seriously and socially distancing, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, um, people maybe either completely aren't taking it seriously, and there's a huge middle ground where people understand intellectually that you know COVID nineteen is this. You know, we have great respect for this virus that can do lots of lots of things to lots of humans in an unpredictable fashion. And yet there are lots of little cheats going on, like little play dates or meeting someone for coffee or maybe going out in the world in for non-essential things just here and there, just enough that mm-hmm. we probably, you know, we aren't doing things as um, you know, uh, strictly as would be optimal.
2: Um, and I that's have, one you know, of the that's one of the scary things is that you can be asymptomatic for such a long period of time but like as this continues to go on and we may be quarantining for months i've been thinking is there going to be a way where we can like say all right i haven't gone anywhere for two weeks and i should be safe to hang out with someone else who who's been quarantining for for two weeks
0: right like that's the million dollar question like when's the end and how do we know and i think you know at the heart of that in my you know from from my limited OBGYN perspective and from what I see in my in my patient population and what I see, you know, on the news and everywhere, is that if we had the means to do mass testing, and if we could sort of just fast forward and understand sort of the how this virus plays out better, we would know the answer to those questions. So we have so many unknowns right now. And I don't I think everyone wants that answer to that question of like when can we just stop all this so that we know when the like when that end is in sight? And right now the answer is we don't know, which I think, you know, brings up a lot of what we don't like to experience, you know, in the yeah. of having uncertainty.
1: I have stopped watching the news as of <laughs> Thursday. I just told Chad, I was like, look, I can't, my heart can't take this right now because I'm just prone to anxiety anyway. And then when there's, I'm just swimming in this soup of unknowns, it's just really unhealthy for me. So I said, you know, if schools get closed for the year, let me know. If grocery stores close, let me know. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, give me the essentials. And then otherwise, we are doing everything we can to, to manage this right now. So, um, yeah, we don't like those unknowns, for sure.
0: Absolutely. I think what you brought up yeah. is such a great point. that idea that sometimes watching the news and sometimes listening to what's going on comes from a place of sort of curiosity and interest. And I just want to figure out what's going on and see if it's going to inform my decisions. And other times it comes from this like almost compulsive sense of stress and like, what's wrong? What's next? How can I find out? How can I figure it out? And when you get to that point where you are, where you think you know, I've already made all my decisions right now. I know what I'm going to do. And if something big comes up, that will change it. But I've decided already, you know, for, you know, I'm guessing like that you're going to socially distance and you're going to limit your outings. And yep. if it's not going to change, why go and sort of like fan the embers of anxiety and uncertainty when you've exactly. already made your decisions.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for your perspective on that. We were chatting, i both curious, um, just kind of your take on it. So I wanted to, before, we're going to talk a little bit going forward about your current work and your coaching, but I wanted to ask if you would just talk a little bit about your journey. I love to listen to people's um, path into their work and their vocational direction and how they found it. Um, So I I wanted you to share a little bit, if you could, about how you became a physician, what the journey was for you, um, kind of the internal decisions that were a part of that process um, and in any fears and failures that you had to overcome to get into this work. Um, and then we'll go forward from there.
0: Oh, absolutely. So I, I think my perspective on how I became a physician has kind of grown the longer I've been in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been in OBGYN in private practice for about 10 years and um the way it started, you know, when I went to, I kind of had this general vague notion that I thought being a physician would be interesting since I was a child. It just, anatomy was fascinating to me. Physiology was fascinating to me. I thought it was very interesting, but I didn't really know anything about it. And when I was in college, I was very much drawn more towards, you know, anthropology, sociology, psychology, and, you know, literature. And so I did a lot of my work in that. And I remember at the end of, you know, my years in college that, I I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I kind of felt a little bit lost. To be honest, I I didn't know how to take what I loved and what I found fascinating, and put it into some sort of income generating work. Like I didn't mm-hmm. know what that was, and I remember thinking, well, you know, I thought about this physician thing; it seemed fascinating, but I'd kind of put it on the back burner because it I, like I kind of thought being a physician was like going to be like being a mechanic for the human body. I was going to be fixing a bunch of things, but I wasn't going to be doing other things that I found more interesting. And so I kind of fell into this, you know, I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to try medical school because I don't really know what else to do. And it is fascinating to me. So let's just give it a go, which sounds so strange because I know some people, you know, they, either their parents wanted them to be doctors or they wanted to be a doctor since they were two years old. Um, so mine was a little bit different um, in that sense. And I remember going into it, just being a little bit unclear about like what it was and what it meant and and then once I got into medical school, it was fascinating. It was very interesting. I loved it. It was, you know, hard work, but it was good work. And I had no idea that OBGYN would be where I would end up because I thought I would do emergency medicine or I thought I would do surgery. And then I fell in love with, you know, OBGYN. It was a mix of surgery and clinic and health and prevention, and it was just like a perfect landing point for me. It was like kind of a nice synthesis of all the things that I really loved because there was a lot of mm um, emotional work and psychological work. You know, we jokingly call it gyneciatry because there's a lot of, you know, and, um, a lot of stress that, you know, that we see in our office when people are at their most vulnerable. So it ended up, (laughs) despite me not really knowing, um, it ended up just being absolutely perfect for me. Um, and Mm. so, so that's sort of the, the long winding way, but, um, and then I, you know, ultimately found myself into two fabulous private practices and it's been great.
2: Well, yeah, let's, um. okay. So let's skip ahead a little bit, but kind of right in the middle of those two practices. You, you practiced in Chattanooga for six years, I believe. And, mm-hmm. and even though you were, you were busy and I think trying to do everything right, um, you were suffering a little bit of from some career burnout. What was that like what what did you do to uh, kind of overcome the burnout? Uh, what did you learn from it? and um you know, and then how does that apply to the work that you're doing now in uh, in Bend, Oregon?
0: Right. So I think one of the interesting things about my experience of quote burnout was that for me, I, I think it was I don't know if it was um, I think it' was best described as sort of like early career misery that I know that my sweet partners will kind of roll their, you know, old partners will roll their eyes out because burnout is usually a sort of a syndrome of disenchantment and feeling like you don't have control that oftentimes classically happens late in someone's career. And so, you know, my experience was early on, I had stress that what I was doing, although I loved it, wasn't really matching what I envisioned it to be. There were a lot of aspects to it that just weren't as savory and weren't as fulfilling as I thought they would be. And so I phrased it burnout, but in hindsight I think it was just I had just some I had some ideas about what it was going to feel like that didn't match what it actually was. And maybe it's
1: like disillusionment.
0: Yeah, I I had the sense of disillusionment exactly. And um what made it difficult for me was on the outside, on paper, Everybody I felt like looking in on my situation would, would think, man, this is just a beautiful set of circumstances, great partners, great patients, great family, great house, great community, great social network. What is this lady suffering from? Why is why is she stressed at all? It looks so beautiful on paper. And so I had a lot of shame about that because I was stressed and I couldn't articulate why. Um, and it was just disillusionment, um, but I didn't really know what to do about it. And Ultimately, we decided we wanted to move for geographic reasons, and we really loved the climate in Oregon. We loved the you know the geography, and despite the fact that you know our huge friend set for you know multiple decades was in Chattanooga, we decided we'd make the plunge and go live somewhere else. And it was a great move for in that regard. And I joined another just like beautiful private practice. My partners here are just phenomenal. Um, but I will say that you know some of my stressors kind of you know followed me a little bit and what I, I sort of stumbled my way into life coaching, um, and learned about it and realized that there were some stressors that I just, now I understand better. And so now I'm busier than I've ever been before, um, in terms of how much work I do and I'm infinitely happier just mostly because of all the mind management tools that I learned through coaching.
1: Yeah. Well, can you, could you share some of those stressors that followed you, um, you know, the whole idea that we can, we can change geographically, but a lot of times those, the same things follow us wherever we go. I think there's an Avid brothers song about that. Right? Well, it's
2: wherever you go, there you are. Okay. Right. Well, you know, there, that's the, that famous, wasn't what I was thinking. Of, yeah.
1: But, uh, but yeah, like what, what did you take with you in terms of um, mental scripts or stressors or lifestyle patterns that you really had to confront And, um, and how did that lead you to coaching?
0: Right. So I love this question because I, I mean, there's so many people have pointed out this, you know, wherever you go, there you are the idea that, you know, you can move your body in the world, but you take your mind Mm -hmm. with you, you take your brain with you. And, you know, there's a, one of those really funny, you know, Adam Sandler, uh, little uh, skits that talks about this, like you go on vacation and you take your same narrative with you on vacation, just because you're, yeah. you know, on the other side of the globe in this beautiful tropical location, you can still have whatever is going on in your mind there, despite what changes in your external world, you know, and where you are in the world. And so some of the things that I brought with me uh, were a sense of, you know, like, kind of I'd say like fluid boundaries around overworking and overextending at the expense of myself, a sense of... Um, a tendency to be very, you know, focused on people pleasing, being focused on external validation for my mood and a tendency. I don't know to... anything about that. <laughs> right. Like, isn't it? It's like most people are like, <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure I do that. Like I've done that as full story account. of my life. Yeah. <laughs> um. So uh, I, I, for sure, I, I never, I saw other people do this. I never thought I did it, but I very much learned that I had some classic perfectionistic tendencies Lots of procrastination, lots of beating myself up, lots of just being really interested in like working for my patients, being there for my partners, making sure that I was being the best mom I could possibly be, be like, you know, a good partner, a good friend to my husband, a good friend to myself, my friend, my, you know, actual friends, um, mm-hmm. and having myself like at the bottom of the list kind of as an afterthought. That's what I brought with me, you know, so it wasn't, so my yeah. burnout had nothing to do. For the most part, with my job, with my partners in Chattanooga, like it has nothing to do with that. It was all to do with me,
1: yeah, it's so so i I do coaching around burnout, as you know. Mm-hmm. and I tell people it's not the job, it's you. Yep. like, and it, I think it's a little startling to a lot of people, but by and large, you know, ninety something percent of the time that is the truth. um we we we, we so fear that it's job and I'm, I'm, I'm shackled to this, you know, this position that maybe is so stressful that I don't even move toward changing things. I'm scared to even ask for, uh, you know, to have the conversations with my partners or my boss about how we could restructure some things. So I don't, and then I just stew in the stress of believing it's my job. Mm -hmm. And so there's a ton of internal work around getting super honest with ourselves Uh, exactly what you're saying. Like, what am I doing to contribute? How am I complicit in creating this situation that I say I don't want? So I think that's, um, so the coming to those uh, awarenesses about yourself, was coaching a part of helping you get, get clear on that? Or did you get clear on that and then go into coaching?
0: Oh yeah. So no. I was completely unclear okay. on this until I found coaching. I wish it would have been the other way around. I'd feel you know brilliant, but no, I <laughs> I sort of fell into discovering some of the you know more cognitive and internal work by you know my luck of the draw of finding coaching. Yeah. Are
2: you-
0: I think you guys cut out for a second. It sounds silent. Okay. Oh, there, I can hear you again. Beautiful. Okay. Ooh, yeah. Scary, we we yeah. lost
1: you. Okay. too. So we were like, what?
0: Yeah. So um, I, maybe, okay. I, I discovered yeah. um, all this internal cognitive work through coaching, not the other way around. It was definitely the thing that pulled back the veil, turned the lights on so I could see more clearly.
1: Yeah. So you had your own coach. Is that, is that true helped you in that process? So talk to, talk to us about how you moved or not moved, but how you integrated life coaching into your practice and specifically how you're coaching people right now around, um, stress and overwhelm and particularly, um, drinking less and habit formation. So how did you get into that and kind of talk through your, your work in that
0: area? Gotcha. So, um, so I found coaching sort of in this happenstance fashion. My coach helped me, and I realized that the work in coaching, which to me is this really lovely synthesis of you know the lessons that we learn in cognitive psychology, positive psychology, you know, evolutionary biology, meditation, kind of put together in these really concrete tools that mm-hmm. you know people really glom onto because they're super effective. Um, yeah. when I realized that, how effective it was for me. And it reminded me of all the things that I loved in college with, you know, learning about psychology. I realized there was an an opportunity for me to learn something that I was passionate about that had helped me, whether I did anything with it professionally or not kind of didn't matter. I I had no real idea that I would want to, you know, do coaching as something as a vocation. Um, But I decided to get certified and went through and just had an amazing experience getting certified. And then what I've learned along the way is that in obstetrics and gynecology, it's just tremendously helpful to kind of be able to, when I'm counseling my patients in these situations where they have high stress with their delivery or with, you know, before they get surgery or, you know, just surrounding body image or, you know, all those things, a lot of Mm -hmm. coaching concepts, they completely fit with that. So it's just a lot of the, you know, um, how to best to be a resource for patients that, yeah. you know, it just adds to that as a nice adjunct. And as I went through this, I realized that the things that I had learned, I had, you know, colleagues that were also suffering from stress and overwhelm and perfectionism and, you know, putting themselves low on the list. And mm-hmm what I had experienced with my stress, you know, as I described, you know, I had what I called burnout. That was just, you know, me not really knowing how to um, manage my own mind. And I was using alcohol and using food and using exercise and overworking and all sorts of things to kind of feel better and solve for my disenchantment um, as a, just a way to you know, be my best self and kind of wind down from the day and, you know, fix things I didn't see as fixable. And through my coaching, you know, with my experience of coaching, when I learned, you know, what was sort of, you know, perpetuating these habits that weren't really serving me, I all of a sudden started seeing all my colleagues and, you know, other physicians who were basically doing very similarly. And I realized that if something helped me have such a profound transformation, it, it could help other people. And if I could be part of that change, wouldn't that be amazing? So I started coaching physicians, Around habit change, you know, whether it be drinking or eating or you know all the things we talked about, and it was just so fulfilling to do. And so I started integrating that in terms of doing that, you know, with a very small number of clients, just because I am quite busy in my private practice. So doing it sort of, you know, in the margins, um, as well as doing it with my clinical, you know, clinical work.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, this—I mean, it, this is an interesting um, aspect of things. So you talked about. Um, you know drinking and you know apparently alcohol sales have have gone up 55% right? since um yeah have you you've seen that mm-hmm. Absolutely. um but uh so so alcohol's on the rise and it is I don't, it's, I think people are struggling with their routines and habits as well. So it's, it's easy to, to drink, um, and right here, right now, if someone's listening, like what would you tell them to just be drinking less if they're, if they're struggling with that right now? Um, I think too, one of the fascinating aspects about this that you've talked about is if you can solve for this, if you can, uh, unpack and control your mind on this subject. You you are empowered to to do so with a lot of other negative habits.
0: Oh, absolutely. So you know the way I look at this is the our relationship with alcohol or anything that we use to alter how we're feeling or to numb. Our relationship with that is kind of a microcosm for our relationship with our thoughts about everything else. So. If we have a long busy day, if COVID is stressing us out, if we, you know, watching the news is just depleting us and we want to change how we're feeling, alcohol is a very effective way, right? It, you know, we have, it's good, there's the pleasure of it, there's the habit of it, and there is the, you know, physical, able to like quiet the mind, feel better, you know, that idea that we wanna you know, sort of evolutionarily avoid pleasure, Oh, sorry, avoid pain, seek pleasure, and do it efficiently. Yeah. Alcohol, like, is the perfect, you know, combination of those things. It's extremely effective. Take a drink, you can quiet your mind, you can relax, you feel better. And when your whole day is spent, you know, feeling exhausted from whatever, it's you know, it's a, it's sort of the perfect end to the day. It's the perfect thing to use because it is so efficient. And so when you have a global pandemic, which is, you know, an experience that in this generation, we've never experienced anything like this before using something that is that efficient for reducing anxiety, changing stress, it makes perfect sense that, you know, this is great for, you know, the the wine and beer and liquor industry.
1: When you are coaching folks around um, the, the, drinking, uh, specifically, but habit change in particular, you know, generally, um, to me, like I think about mindset shifts, I think about mindsets and I think about habit, which is to me more behavior. How do you address that? Like in, in, in our Facebook group, the big self Facebook group that this topic comes up a lot, actually, I was just telling Chad before we got on, like people are very aware that they're drinking more than they want to be drinking, whatever that is, and they're aware that they want to drink less. But the the translation to behavior change is so hard. You know, a lot of people can maybe do it for 30 days and then kind of backslide into these habits. And so when you're working with people, uh, I'm interested if you could just kind of talk us through kind of that process in terms of, mindset to habit change and how, how how do we need to be thinking about this like i'm aware that i'm drinking more than i want to be drinking right now <clears throat> and i'm you know i'm i'm pretty intentional about habits and like when it's non covid time i'm pre- we're pretty good about that about structuring our week but but now it's like kind of all gone to hell a little bit so how should we be thinking about this in terms of mindset and habits
0: Right so I think there's there's a couple pieces to this. One of the most okay. common things we do, uh, you know, collectively as humans when we're trying to change a habit is we look at what we're currently doing, our current behavior and the desired behavior and we look at the mm-hmm. gap and for some of us we get stuck in just looking at the gap and you know feeling sort of paralysis for how to bridge the two. Um yep. but we look at the gap and it's kind of the classic, you know, New Year's Eve, I'm going to join the gym. And I'm going to do this thing, and you know, it, where people kind of get excited about the change. And what we do is we jump into trying to make a change. With alcohol, the most common thing we do is we use willpower, or secondarily we use distraction. So we say, "I'm going to make this change, and I'm going to stop drinking, or reduce drinking, or I'm going to, you know, have it rules. I'm only going to drink on the weekend, or I'm only going to drink one drink, or two drinks, or one bottle, or whatever it is." And we make a rule to guide our behavior. And we can, like you said, for 30 days or for a month, yeah, a month and a half, or for you know, it's some sort of um, group effort with friends, kind of white knuckle our way through to not doing the behavior or changing the behavior that we want. And then at the end of that, we go right back into what we were doing, which is why, you know, gym memberships, you know, they rise in January and then they fall in February, you know, mm-hmm. you know dry dry January, and then you go back in February. And the reason for that is usually because we haven't looked at what was driving the behavior in the first place. And what's driving the behavior is usually some form of emotions and some collective thoughts that we are just, that are our familiar narratives that we we haven't addressed with willpower. Willpower is, I better not do this. I shouldn't do this. I don't want to do this. And we can do that temporarily, but then that fizzles out because we haven't got to the root. So that where you have mindset and behavior changes, when they they have to overlap because all habit change comes down to identity change, but you can't just you know you, it's a, which we all know that conceptually, but we can't just say, well, I'm the type of person who just doesn't drink again, or I'm the type of person who only moderately drinks, and just make it so with a magic wand. There does there is work there, but the work isn't the activity, you know, changing the drinking so much as it is getting behind what's driving the drinking in the first place. And so that's where a lot of the coaching that I do comes to where we have to discover what are the common emotions and what are the common thoughts that are there that are driving the drinking in the first place. And so the way we do that is, we say, okay, so I'm drinking more than I want. So why am I drinking? What's behind that? And what's usually behind that is something simple, like just an urge to drink or desire to drink and answering that urge. You know, I want to drink, I have a drink and that habit of when my mind and my brain tells me I want something, whether it's a cookie or to turn on Netflix or to shop or to procrastinate or to have a drink. And I answer that, that creates, you know, know, with classic conditioning creates conditioning that over time becomes familiar. And that's where the habit comes in. And so unpacking that habit, the key that we usually miss is that we just try to focus on the behavior without getting behind it. So what I do is, with a lot of my coaching is I help people understand what they're trying to numb from, like why the habit makes sense, because the habit gives us a benefit. There's a great benefit when you have been overextending and saying yes to everyone else all day long. And finally you come home and you have some me time that is signaled Mm -hmm. by food or alcohol. Like there's a benefit there. And there, there, it just happens to have like some side effects that people don't like, especially with drinking, like with poor sleep or poor health or something like that. So people do best when they understand what's the benefit of this habit that I've created. Like, what has it, what, what, why have I done it? And once you understand why you've done it, and then you can understand what's driving it and perpetuating it, mm-hmm. then you can kind of tease out a little bit of sort of the, the sense of kind of like our primitive brains desire for reward and pleasure. That's very easy to say yes to, you know, it's very easy to say yes to like a chocolate, piece of chocolate cake. It's a little bit yeah. harder to say, I understand I like chocolate cake. I understand I like beer, but I'm okay wanting it and not saying yes. And so working on that sense of like. Oh, that's hard. Right.
1: For sure. <laughs> so you're, it's it's you're, hard to want it right. and to not have it.
2: You, yeah. You're saying so part of it is there will be a time like in the process of. Of uh, say unwinding from a habit is that you will be recognizing that you desire the thing, but you are going to tell yourself that you do not want or you're not going to let yourself. Ha- I mean, I guess I think to uh,
0: you let yourself be uncomfortable a little bit. So well, I think one question I have perfectly is, is that the wanting, there's nothing wrong with wanting. Like, there we yeah. as humans, we are sort of, you know however you want to look at it designed or we've evolved or whatever to seek things that help our survival. And, you know, it's postulated that things that help our survival, like jumping out of the way of a bus or making sure we don't eat the poisonous plants will give us like an internal reward. These days in the 21st century, we have lots of access to cheap and easy prepackaged, delivered to your house reward. That, you know, a mm-hmm. long time ago used to be important for our survival to have that. Now, you know, there's nothing important to our survival about sugar or alcohol or any of these things, but they are pleasurable and they do remind us of that. And so there's nothing wrong with wanting. It's just when we want something and we say yes to it, and then ultimately it doesn't serve us, that's when we can get curious about like, okay, but I want to change this. Because if we want exercise and we're over-exercising and damaging our ligaments, well, then you know, we have to question that. But if we want something that's serving us, great. So with alcohol, you know, specifically, the wanting of it and the willingness to be uncomfortable at first with being like, yeah, I, of course I want this. I want alcohol. It's something that I've done for a long time. I want it, but I'm willing to sit here and want it and actually just feel the physical feeling of wanting or you know, an urge or a desire, like just feeling it in your body and kind of doing a body scan and be mm-hmm. like, all right. I feel a little bit of, you know, like a pulling in my chest, a tightness in my shoulders, a little bit of like maybe agitation and recognizing that maybe it lasts 30 seconds or five minutes or comes in waves or whatever it is. Once people, you know, can pause long enough in that sense of wanting, just recognizing that's kind of a normal part of unpacking a habit, then they realize, you know, the wanting is actually not so bad. It seems hard, but white knuckling our way through it actually doesn't give us the experience of realizing what wanting feels like. And when people become, you know, they can perfect that skill of sitting with the discomfort of desire, knowing that like the day before I've planned that I'm, you know, I'm not going to have a drink today. And when I want that drink, I'm going to allow that urge to be there. And I'm going to feel what it feels like in my body. I'm going to sort of describe it like a researcher and be like, I feel this, I feel this, I feel this and just sit with it and kind of observe it. And then notice that Mm -hmm. wanting is actually not so bad. Then people can practice that as a habit. And before long, the the urges for wanting to have a reward, they kind of fade in a way that is impossible Mm -hmm. when we use willpower.
2: Wow, that's that's interesting. I love that. That is a really um, thoughtful, I think, takeaway uh, on the subject. Uh, Another thought, I mean, if I'm pursuing my curiosity on this uh, subject a little bit, um, you know, when we take things away, don't we also kind of leave a void of how we were using our time? Should are there habits that you recommend of other things that we should do? Or is it just like, no, not necessarily, just be mindful of what you are taking away?
0: Right. So I, I think I maybe mean, there's so many ways to look at this, right? The first thing is that we have choice with what we want to do. And that sometimes when we're using our time. You know in this classically after work. For a lot of the people I, you know, coach, they're kind of overachievers, overworkers. And at the end of the day, or you know, on the weekend, their alcohol or their food is a way to wind down and create space for themselves. And so if they're going to remove that habit, there's the question that you ask is one of the most common things. It's like, well, what do I do instead? <laughs> what now what? And we all get to decide. But what often happens is when people change that habit is they realize what they were numbing from during the day, whether it was just all sorts of you know thought, very simple thoughts like I gotta go, I gotta do this, I gotta get dinner ready, gotta get the kids ready, gotta you know the uh, sense of the I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, or just um, you know whether it can be more intense emotions. There's something that they were solving for, and so when they stop solving for that, they notice there's just a lot of things that come up. So it's not like they don't have something going on during that time where they're not drinking there, there's actually so much going on. And that's like the perfect time to kind of get back to like, okay, what is going on in my mind? What, what's what been there all day long that makes this a great solution? And so one of the, you know, the, the two classic ways that we usually stop a habit and try to change it to something else is willpower. And then if we don't use willpower, we use distraction. And so even when we say, okay, I'm going to make a plan, I'm not going to drink, or I'm not going to eat, you know, a piece of cake, whatever it is, And then the time comes and we have the urge or the desire to do the thing that we had decided that we weren't going to do, and we don't willpower our way through, people will say, well, you know what? I'm going to go take a bubble bath, go walk around the block. I'm going to turn on a podcast, open a book, and kind of busy ourselves away from that discomfort that is a natural thing to happen when we're changing a habit. So I usually don't recommend that somebody replace one habit with another habit until they have figured out what was driving the behavior in the first place. And then sure, if they want to intentionally do something else with their time, beautiful. And that doing it from a place of, yeah, sure, I want to do these things. Sure, I want to drink. Of course I do. You know, like with a sense of acceptance of like, of course I want to drink. I've done it for a long time. No big deal. You know, people who drink alcohol regularly, of course they want it when they stop briefly. And feeling that discomfort all the way through and processing it in a way that allows us to actually be with that discomfort for a while. And then being like, you know what? And actually, I think going for a walk sounds like a beautiful idea. A little bit uncomfortable. I kind of Mm -hmm. feel antsy. But I think going for a walk and bringing that with me and not running away from that sounds like a good idea right now. So I hope that answers your question in terms of like, you know, what do you do? But I think it's very easy to try to fill our time and basically not be addressing that root cause if we replace one habit with another as a way of busy distracting.
1: That's, a, I was just thinking like so, so much of what we do, what I do is solve for the symptom instead of giving myself time to get to the root. And cause I'm sitting, a question I ask myself a lot, okay, is what am I escaping from? And I have to sit there and really do the work around that. Like, okay, for me, it's usually stress. And then I have to say, ask myself, okay, so what am I stressed about? And then I have to, you know, unpack that a little bit well, I'm putting way too much into 24 hours than is humanly possible. Okay, well, why am I putting way too much into 24 hours? So it's that process of unpacking and we can't do that work if we're numbing from it, oh, you said right? And so, so I think there's this perfect. kind of catch that we can't do the work to stop the drinking or minimize the drinking um, and vice versa.
0: Absolutely. I think you said it so perfectly. You know, when we are looking at a habit, I think it's key to get behind what's driving the habit. And sometimes that's just, we just need a little break from our brain from the day. And you have to yeah. you know, to get to the root cause as opposed to just solving for the behavior. Like you said so nicely, you have to get to what are the sort of like the regular thoughts that I'm thinking, what are the regular beliefs I have about myself that are the little kernel that have, fueled this habit and how can I get back to those and be curious about those and like you said that whole like I'm squishing so much into 24 hours and mm-hmm. sometimes at the core of that because I hear that a lot you know from the physicians I coach they're constantly on the go and they and yet they don't feel like they're ever getting to the end of their to-do list they don't feel like they're ever mm-hmm. accomplishing enough it's never enough and so they're just exhausted and they just want a little break at the end of the day so it makes perfect sense. Yeah. But when they can get behind what's driving that desire to just go, 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 go all the time, that's when they can kind of solve for the you know the bigger issue, which is more the mindset yeah. issue.
2: Totally. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I just um, sim- similarly, I think I just read a statistic that over 75% of people are saying that uh, COVID-19 has negatively impacted their habits, routine or structure. So do, do you have any suggestions for how we could improve on developing some habits or structure around our daily routine while we're working uh, so often from, from you know, remotely or from home?
0: Yeah. So I do think that this, I mean, this also gets to the core of what we're talking about with when we have a desired set of behaviors, you know, things that we do that, you know, we, they fill up our cup and we want to do them. And then all of a sudden the scenery changes and what we have, what has worked so well for us before is altered. Then we have to come up with a question of say, okay, why is it that we wanted those things before? You know, like, what was it that we gained from going to the gym from being social you know what was that and the reason i put it this way is because usually the reason why do we do anything is for how it makes us feel or how we think it will make us feel so mm-hmm. you know we exercise because we know it's healthy we like how it makes us feel there's a sense of accomplishment it you know it does all these things but it's usually because of how it makes us feel that we're doing these things and so there's when there's an alteration You can just ask with this alteration, with, you know, what has changed for me now, what are ways that I can feel how I want to feel, even though, you know, things have changed. And I think what this for me, COVID is like this wonderful invitation to be more innovative and be more creative and I, I think where we can get a little bogged down is we can look at all the ways that things have changed negatively. Be like, look, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't even do this. I can't even do this. And we can spin in these dead ends, you know, where we're sort of like asking dead end questions for like, why does it have to be this way? Why can't I do these things? When am I ever going to do this? And that can lead to like what Shelley said, that sense of like anxiety and overwhelm and just feeling stuck versus if we look at this as this opportunity to, restructure things in a way that could serve us we can ask things like you know what are three outside the box creative ways I can get what I got before in this new situation what are ways that I can even find more joy even though things are different and when we ask questions like that we can actually start getting to work at solutions that are really kind of fun because there are ways to find you know ways to incorporate what we used to do just in a way that looks different. I mean, it's going to look radically different, but if we can ask it from that perspective of like being curious and being creative, we're going to find so many things that make this completely manageable.
1: I love that. I find myself feeling like I'm holding my breath, like waiting for things to shift back. And that's an excuse, like exactly like looping in these dead ends. I love that analogy. Like we're, it's almost like if I can hold my breath long enough, then things are going to go back to normal. I'm going to be able to go to the gym. So I'm just, I'm, it's like pause right now. And so, yeah, I think there's a, um, a real opportunity to be creative about what do we want? You know, how can we structure this right now? Because um, things might not go back the way they were for a very long time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that idea of asking asking questions that you want the answer to right? Like what about this is actually perfect? What can Mm. I possibly learn here? What are things I might learn that I have no idea about? And what are some practical things that I could try today to see if they work? Mm. And I feel like those are kind of more like the empowering thoughts that I love those. Yeah. That, you know, they help me a lot because, you know, I will say that, you know, I may coach people on mindset and thought work and, you know, ways to manage your mind, handle your urges, allow discomfort all day, every day. But, you know, I'm human too. And I'm right. very much living, you know, the stressors as well. And I, you know, ultimately had to use, you know, not, not had to, but have gotten to use this as a great opportunity for me to look at some of the assumptions I had, you know, cause I kind of walk around with this idea that, you know, the, um, yes, I know that life is short and unpredictable, and things are uncertain. But it was more intellectual and more mm-hmm. like a vague notion. Now with COVID, it is very clear that it is possible that I could go to work and get sick and bring it home to my family, and you know, have my spouse get sick and be hospitalized, and I can't visit him. Like all these things are very concrete now, right? And so that idea that. You know, I've never had control over my own mortality, and I don't have control over you know the health and the well-being of other people. Um, it's always been there. It's just not something that's been sort of in the forefront of my mind. And mm-hmm. so, managing that sort of the the fact that that's always been there, but I've never thought about it, has been in a way helpful because it's really helped me. And this is, I think, the gift of COVID-19 for you know this you know cult, for our culture is that it's helped me see what truly matters most to me and what's just a bunch of a bunch of garbage and things that don't yeah. really fill up my cup. So I, I'm keenly aware of the things that matter most to me right now, and in ways that maybe I was sort of aware of, but now, you know, time with my kids, you know, not being distracted, not being worried about some of the superfluous stressors, that's really important to me. Connection with my spouse, making sure I'm taking care of myself, getting great sleep, those are huge priorities. And so looking at this as an opportunity to ask, like, what is perfect about this? Definitely is some a question that I it it served me better than why does it have to be like this? Mm-hmm.
2: I like that. I think that, that, that that's a way to shift the mindset. Shelley, you often talk about gratitude, the research behind gratitude and how that can really, you know, impact the power of our um, being and, and doing.
1: So we're going, we ask um, our guests the same three questions as we wrap up. And so we'll ask you those now. The first question is, what are you reading? What book are you reading or podcast are you listening to that you're learning something new and it's leaving
0: an impression on you? So, I will go with the book that I'm reading right now, which I feel like okay. I've been trying to read this book for a long time. <laughs> I keep getting off track. I don't know if that happens to you guys where, you know, you does, reading the the thing, you're just enraptured by it and then, you know, life gets busy and then you, you know, yep. it forever to read it. Um, but the book that I'm reading right now it, it, that I'm trying to finish is Essentialism. You know, the discipline. Oh uh, yeah. Greg, Greg McKeown. I don't know if you've read that one, but
1: really love no, it. No, I've heard it's fantastic though.
0: Yeah. I think it's, I, and I think it's such a good fit for what's going on with this right now.
2: Essentialism. That'll, that's an interesting takeaway. Um, well, okay. And our, for our second, uh, question that we always conclude with, uh, you know, obviously you're a morning person. You wanted to conduct this, this, uh, podcast very early. What's your morning routine like, Christine?
0: So, um, I would say my morning routine has evolved, right? Um, but my morning routine most mornings is I get up somewhere between kind of like, I don't know, 4:30 and 5:30 in the morning, and I stumble out quietly and get a cup of coffee. And then I go to our little, like, you know, kind of this mini office area, and I either read or write, and then My kids come in and say hello to me and (laughs) we go from there.
2: So you start really early. Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: Last question. What does. Did we lose you?
0: You've cut out just a little bit, Shelly. Can you repeat your question?
1: Yes. What does big self mean to you?
0: Yeah. So I I love the phrase big self. Um, And I think when I I first heard that with you guys and when I think about that idea of big self, for me, it means it's sort of this idea for me of like, who am I and what is the best version of me and how is that going to unfold? Um, So big self being, you know, sort of this, um, not like reverence, but of an appreciation for all the you know power that we have of taking ideas that are in our mind and making them reality and being willing to be you know sort of have the full range of human emotions along the way and knowing that you know there are challenges and there are failures and there are things that we do in our lives that help us grow and that through changing we do experience challenges. And when we do them from the perspective of knowing that we are constantly evolving and that we are constantly basically just trying to be the best version of us and tap into our unique strengths and kind of that sense of, you know, our zone of genius, where our zone of genius meets our flow. Um, When I think of big self, I feel like it encompasses all of those things. And it's, I think one of the things that to me, has helped me when I think about the concept of big self, is big self, it's not just limited to the positive self, and the cheerful, and the gratitude, and the, you know, sense of contentment, it includes everything, it in, you know, there's, there's everything there, it's not just the positive, it's that nice balance, and the willingness to accept the whole package, in a way that's not like fighting against the negative, mm. that makes sense. Yeah, love oh, that.
2: it does love it.
1: Yeah, and I think you know as we've gotten to know each other a little bit more, Christy. Like, I feel it. Like, I mean, the whole big self journey. I think you have beautifully personified. Um, I think you know the integration which you're talking about of of positive and quote negative aspects of ourself, but how how you have done that work and now you're making such an impact uh, with that work. You know, and the coaching you're doing the practice you're doing with women you know that to me is exactly what this this whole community and this whole mission is about is bringing all of that like all of it is your your giftedness and then and how you serve others with that so well like i think that's exactly what big self is so we have loved having you on today
0: well i've loved talking with you guys i i really, i fun. think you have done you guys have both done such a phenomenal job with finding out what your strengths are and distilling them and then creating something that is meaningful to you, as well as this entire community of people, because everything that you guys you know discuss and talk about clearly resonates beyond just a small group. I mean, this is something that this work that you guys are doing is important work and it's it's phenomenal to observe from afar so I,
2: I oh, wow you guys, well, I thank you it. very much. It has been great having you on Christy and we want to just wish you is be just be safe. Uh, I know that you can't stay quarantined completely so we are thinking about you and your family. Um, Thanks for making some time for us uh, this morning.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for being on and sharing your your wisdom and your work. Uh, I know it's going to impact people. So we really appreciate you.
0: Thank you guys as well. I hope you guys stay safe too.
2: Thank you for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, join the community on Facebook at the Big Self Society. You can find us at big underscore self on Twitter. And we are also at the Big Self Society on Medium, where we feature and curate content on topics ranging from psychology to creativity and productivity. We'd love to hear from you. What show made an impact on your thinking, your habits, your decision-making, or anything else? And anyone you'd like us to reach out to and have on the show, let us know.